Coming up next is Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, it's time for a discussion about Adi, also known as the female Viagra. This medication has been referred to as the female Viagra, but Viagra treats an entirely different disorder in men than ADI treats for women. Plus, endovascular neurosurgeons can now treat stroke victims without open surgery. We're doing uh, more and more procedures through smaller incisions or even without using incisions at all based on the best way we can help patients. And underage drinking. Is the message of danger getting through? 75% of the young people are doing well and that means their parents are doing well and the adults around them and their teachers. We'll have expert advice on shoulder pain and a selection from our healing muse, all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we'll discover the power of endovascular surgery in treating stroke and other neurovascular diseases. Plus, we'll get the latest facts about underage drinking and what needs to be done about it. But first, all about the new drug being called the female Viagra. Well, the first drug to treat sexual dysfunction in premenopausal women, dubbed the female Viagra, has received approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. But exactly what is it and what does it do? Here with more on all of this is Dr. Renee Mested. She's the Division Chief of General Obstetrics and Gynecology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Mested. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So after a long, and I understand a controversial process, the U.S. FDA has approved this first-ever drug, and it's aimed at boosting female libido, I guess. Um, it's called flybanserin. Yes, Flybanserin, and it has a, a brand name of Adi... Adi-I. Adi-I, oh, Adi-I. And it's approved for use of women in women with sexual dysfunction. Tell us about it. What is it purported to do? So this medication is aimed to uh, treat women with uh, the diagnosis of hypoactive, hypoactive sexual desire dysfunction, which um, has recently been updated to... In the new DSM? Yes. So it's become a psychological uh, kind of term that is it's a diagnostic term used for a certain number of women who basically have no sexual drive. Exactly. So um, about about 8.5% of women overall um, suffer from this, this diagnosis. Um, it's... For for younger women, it's rough. It's about nine percent. For postmenopausal women or older women, it's more um, about seven percent, and then um, about actually thirteen percent of women in their middle age, premenopausal, but no longer in their twenties and early thirties. So it really runs the gamut in terms of the yes. the continuum of age within women. Maybe not very 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 young women, but it seems like it it does occur. Yes. All throughout yes. The, the life cycle. Yes. Unfortunately, it's, this medication has been referred to as the female Viagra, but Viagra treats an entirely different disorder in men than ADI treats um, for women. Explain that. So um, Viagra treats erectile dysfunction, which is basically the man has the desire to have sex, he simply can't. And so, it so it's more of a mechanical issue exactly. with a man. Whereas for women, um, these women are capable of having sex, um, many of them. However, most of them lack the desire to initiate sexual activity. They lack spontaneous fantasies. Um, many of them rebuff the efforts of their partner, which then causes concern for their partner as well as them and, and distress in the relationship. The key part, though, of this diagnosis is that um, the lack of sexual desire has to um, provoke distress in the woman herself. Not a distress that her husband isn't happy or her partner isn't happy, but that 
she is concerned that she's not interested in sex. So that is when we actually need to uh, consider some kind of treatment. So what, I mean, it seems like there's could be a very vast number of things that can contribute to this, but give us a kind of a thumbnail of what you think causes this at various stages. So, um, like I said, the largest group happens to be middle-aged women, premenopausal, and those are the women who are the busiest in their careers. Their children are generally, well, they're either young children if they're very uh, career-oriented women and had children later, or their children in their early to mid-teens. Um, they're starting to have difficulties with their parents. Um, they're starting Means to... Means caregiving for caregiving parents. Caregiving for parents. There's... Um, finding that their health isn't as good or easy as it used to be, uh, difficulty maintaining weight, uh, difficulty maintaining a proper diet because of um, a very busy lifestyle that um, is not enabling them to maintain a schedule. They're concerned about their looks. They're concerned about their health. Um, so basically, you're talking about psychological and stress and lifestyle issues that play that all kind of play into this. And are there also the hormonal changes that are taking place, especially both in the premenopausal as well as obviously the postmenopausal women? In some cases, yes. You, um, we find that. Uh, decreases in hormones or fluctuations in the menstrual cycle um, will result in um, decrease in sexual drive. Um, additionally, women may be developing thyroid disorders, which can also contribute to this as well. What role do you think fatigue plays in all of this? Because you have just alluded to the fact that it could be a very busy time, especially in this larger group, this premenopausal, middle, kind of mid-range of women age-wise. And it sounds like people are trying to do it all, maybe the sandwich generation concept. And yes. there's, So what role do you think fatigue may play in all of this, or sleep, lack of sleep? Fatigue plays a major role. Um, you know, when, when a woman gets to bed, she wants to go to sleep. And um, particularly if she has been doing a variety of chores while her husband has been relaxing um, for the past couple of hours, and she falls into bed and just wants to go to sleep because she has a half a dozen things that she has to do before 10 o'clock in the morning the next day. So I'm getting a feeling from you that you don't f perhaps feel that either the diagnosis is always accurate in terms of it being a real kind of disease entity, so to speak, or that um, this treatment... Well, tell us about how you see the treatment interfacing with this whole thing. So I think there is a role for treatment, and I do think there is a role for medication of some kind. However, a variety of other things need to be investigated as well. Hypoactive sexual desire disorder is for women is a multifactorial issue, just like any other health ailment, diabetes, hypertension. They all, all of these things pertain to um, are a result of dietary um, activity, uh, lifestyle activity. You know whether patient. People get exercise or have sedentary lifestyles, medications that are taken, um, uh, events that are happening in life um, where medication plays a role, but other aspects of the person's lifestyle also have to be investigated and addressed. Um, so for many of these, for many of these women, it, there are a variety of lifestyle activities um, that need to be modified or addressed, as well as potentially um, uh, there is a role at that point for medication. Unfortunately, this probably isn't our best medication. Hold that thought for a minute. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with OBGYN Dr. Renee Mested, and we're talking about women's sexual dysfunction and this new treatment for it. So first, let's get to the drug. What does the drug do? It um, ideally increases the um, number of sexual events a woman has in a month, as well as her satisfaction with those events. How does it do this? Do we understand the mechanism for I mean, it's obviously not just a mechanical thing as it is with a man, as you, as you indicated Correct. earlier. So there's got to be something kind of on the level of the central nervous system, the brain that's going on? It, it does. Um, it, act, it helps to um, boost some of the chemicals within the brain that help to stimulate sexual desire. So the whole issue of libido is chemically yes. intervened, basically, and it's determined chemically. And so these, these new this drug actually boosts those it can. chemicals. Okay. It can. <clears throat> there are some concerns. It's been a very controversial pro process with the FDA. Tell us a little bit about that in terms of the approval and what are the concerns with this drug. So um, 
this drug was not actually approved until its third round of going through the FDA um, approval process. Uh, the first two times, the um, review panels found that the medication basically didn't basically didn't give enough bang for a buck. Um, so was it, it has, ineffective or not as effective as hoped for? It was not as effective as hoped for. It um, basically provided women with, like I said, one more sexual um, activity, satisfying sexual activity a month. Um, but in the process also provided a wide variety of um, bad side effects or potentially um, like undesirable side effects. Uh, predominantly um, syncope, which um, most people understand as passing out. Wow. Like yes. fainting, basically. Fainting, um, yes. And, and something I read about low blood pressure as well. Right, which can often result in the syncope. Um, so hypotension, syncope, somnolence, those kinds of things. So it is Problems not, sleeping? Uh, problems being awake. Oh, problems being awake. Yes. So it, is found, it was determined that it need, the medication has to be taken at night so that when these possible adverse events are um, most likely to occur, the, patient will, the, the person will already be asleep. Is it taken as needed, or is it the kind of thing where you have to take it every day in order for there to be an effect when you need it, so to speak? So the prescribed dosing is 100 milligrams every night. And, um, and is that forever, so to speak? For as long as the woman wants to be able to maintain this um, heightened uh, arousal basically. Unfortunately, it also interacts with a wide variety of commonly used um, other medications? medications as well as alcohol. Um, there is a very strict um, box warning as well as providers have to undergo specific, specific training uh, to strongly prescribe their patients not to drink alcohol while taking this medication. What's, what's the danger with alcohol? It increases the risks of um, hypotension and syncope. So, and unfortunately, it's not a matter of, oh, my husband and I are having our anniversary dinner tonight. We're going to drink a <laughs> bottle of wine with our, our lovely dinner, so I'm going to skip tonight's dose. Oh. It's If you're on the dose, if you're on it, on If you're on it, then you cannot drink alcohol. At all. Period. Wow. That could be a deal breaker for a lot of people, I would think. It, it, it really is. And I think it's a deal breaker for a lot of physicians as well, because the fact is, is um, you know, unless, unless the physician's patient really is a person, a teetotaler, a person who really does not ever drink alcohol, has never drunk alcohol. Most people at some point or another drink alcohol, particularly since these are for premenopausal women. These are younger women. Um, so they are more, in general, socially active as it is. So what's been, what, what's been your, you know, what have you heard on the street in terms of your own patients that people have been coming? It's available currently, right? Yes, it just became available last month. So what's, what's going on? I mean, are women demanding it, asking for it, and, and what are you finding in terms of your own patients? I've actually only had one patient who's requested it so far. Um, and has she found it useful, helpful? I didn't prescribe it because I hadn't undergone the training yet. And um, we are not, we as uh, healthcare providers are not able to prescribe it until we've undergone the training and, and been registered. Pharmacies cannot distribute it until they've undergone the certification process as well. And the certification process involves this issue of when, you know, what are the potential side effects and what are the potential hazards? And particularly the alcohol. I yes. see. So you haven't had much professional experience with it, what, what, what are your thoughts about it? What would you tell patients at this point? Or what's your thinking about it? Um, at this point, I'm, I'm excited that we have a medication that we can um, potentially prescribe to women who fit a very specific criteria. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it's the best drug that we have. And um, it's a little misleading calling it the female Viagra. Yes, it, it is. It seems to me. It's... Again, because Viagra is a medication that you take as you need it. It's almost immediately responsive. And it's um, short-term It's short-term. And um, it, it, it serves a physical function. This medication must be taken chronically every day. Um, doesn't give a lot of um, result, basically. And it has a large number of side effects. So with all the yelling and screaming about women having been discriminated against by their not having a drug to help them with sexual dysfunction, someone has come forward. The hope is that this may perhaps lead to further development of a better alternative. Is that some of your thinking? That, that amongst the opt optimistic members of the uh, women's healthcare community, that is, that is our hope, that um, 
that this will, while it's not our best drug, that hopefully it will stimulate other companies to produce a better drug, fewer side effects, more effect, um, positive effects. And I'm hoping that it doesn't, um, if it fails, that it doesn't then make other companies decide to just throw it all in the waste bin. Well, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us and, and helping us understand this new drug. Appreciate your coming in. My guest has been Dr. Renee Mestich. She's the Division Chief of General Obstetrics and Gynecology at Upstate Medical University. Next up, the power of endovascular surgery in treating stroke. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. States HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Well, the explosion in medicine of minimally invasive techniques for treating conditions that would have otherwise required open and more invasive surgical procedures has had a profound impact on the treatment and outcomes of stroke and other neurovascular conditions. Well, here to fill us in on the latest breakthroughs in this field is Dr. Graham Gould, professor of neurosurgery at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Gould. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you are a neurosurgeon, trained as a neurosurgeon. Give me a feeling for how your field has changed over the last few decades, given all of this emphasis on more minimally invasive techniques. Well, neurosurgery has changed in a lot of ways, I think representative across most of the fields of neurosurgery. Neurosurgeons practice um, typically around the brain and spine, and oftentimes the peripheral nerves. And with the way that we do procedures, uh, we're doing uh, more and more procedures through smaller incisions, or even without using incisions at all, uh, based on the best way we can help patients um, with the uh, best outcomes. Uh, so there've been there've been a lot of changes in this whole area of endovascular or cerebrovascular neurosurgery. What exactly is it? So for many, many years, uh, neurosurgeons have had to deal with the consequences of stroke. Uh, and stroke in a, a big picture involves both bleeding problems in the brain and a lack of blood flow to the brain. So both. You know, they're almost kind of um, polar opposites, but they cause the same issue. Right. Uh, and that issue is injury to the brain or spinal cord um, and then, of course, injury to the patient. Uh, and neurosurgeons... Uh, traditionally have had uh, ways to deal with these problems with open surgery, um, opening the lining of the uh, human body to get into the nervous tissue, whether it's the brain or the spinal cord, uh, to fix the blood vessels um, that were uh, uh, diseased or injured, uh, and uh, to evacuate um, you know, blood clots if they're uh, taking up space in the brain uh, or in the spinal canal or spinal cord. Um, with the advent of Interventional radiology techniques. Um, we're finding uh, more ways to get to places that were hard to get to with surgery, and we can get to them very quickly, which it turns out is critical for treating a patient who might be having a stroke. So, when you talk about the interventional radiology techniques, is that the idea of basically using catheters to go in through vessels yeah. as opposed to having to make these large incisions and try to find your way through the body? Right. So um, just like a cardiologist can get to the heart through a catheter, uh, now we can get to the brain through a catheter. And uh, just like some of the diseases in the heart can be fixed with a catheter, so can some of the diseases in the brain. So you also work along with interventional radiologists who are trained to do this kind of thing. Correct. And the idea is you also need imaging to guide these catheters. Does that play a role? Yeah, so um, all of the catheters and wires, the ways that we access the, the blood vessels is uh, through x-ray or fluoroscopy guidance. Um, and the techniques were really developed by our colleagues in radiology years ago, Um just like uh, uh, interventional cardiology, those same techniques developed by radiologists. Um, and then uh, as they became more and more potent uh, and successful ways to treat patients, um, you know, those of us that have been dealing with the disease in other ways have taken an interest and do extra training to then 
you know, use those same techniques. That actually segues right into an interesting point. Now, you are trained, dual trained, in the sense that you have been trained as a neurosurgeon to do these open procedures where you actually do the larger incisions and go directly through the skull or what have you into the brain. Um, <clears throat> but you also are trained, as you mentioned, in these more minimally invasive techniques. Why is that important? Well, I think that's important because as a patient, you want to make sure that whatever treatment you're seeking is the safest. Um, and I think that what people don't necessarily understand is that sometimes, although it may seem counterintuitive, doing open surgery is actually a safer way to fix a brain problem rather than this minimally invasive through a catheter technique. Um, and so you always want to make sure for whatever disease you may be seeking treatment uh, that you are seeking the safest option regardless of what may be the newest um, or may seem like the least invasive, what we care most about is that the patients get better um, and that they can lead a normal life. So um, that the outcome really is, the, is obviously your target. Right. The outcome important. is our target, not the procedure. So what kinds of problems and conditions? You mentioned stroke. Give me a feeling or give our listeners a feeling for the kinds of diseases of the central nervous system that you might be treating through any of these techniques? Sure, of course. Uh, so most of, most of what we're talking about are blood vessel diseases in some form. And so blood vessel diseases, again, they can um, manifest as a brain aneurysm where uh, the blood vessel uh, wall becomes weak and can balloon outward and rupture. Um, there are blood vessel diseases where the blood vessels are formed in an abnormal way, um, probably since the time we were born. Uh, that can also cause bleeding problems. There are blood vessel problems where the blood vessels can become blocked and blood flow to the brain needs to be restored. Um, and, and then even more unique kinds of blood vessel problems where abnormal connections develop um, between the arteries and veins, um, which can cause other kinds of problems. Um, and so all of these, what do all of these problems share is really that they're they're diseases that are around the blood vessels themselves, and they can involve the blood vessels of the brain, they can involve the blood vessels of the spinal cord or spinal canal, and they can even involve some of the blood vessels closer to the heart um, that affect the way blood flows into the brain or spinal cord. Now, you earlier had alluded, or not only alluded, but very clearly stated that the issue is always what's safest for the patient. So give me a feeling for what the benefits of the minimally invasive techniques are, in some cases over the more open, and vice versa, just briefly. Sure. So there are some parts of the brain, uh, the blood supply and blood vessels of the brain, where uh, open surgery can be quite complicated because of the very, very small blood vessels um, that, you know, that are located nearby. And so, for example, there are some brain aneurysms um, for which uh, open surgery can cause great harm. Even a very successful uh, surgical procedure can still cause great harm to the patient. Um, where uh, treating through a catheter, working inside the blood vessel protects those smaller blood vessels um, and the patients can do very well. Um, the downside of treating through a catheter is that you uh, have to be... Um, the anatomy of the blood vessel you're treating has to be uh, just right. Um, so that the catheter system will work. And if it's not, then it can be more complicated and more dangerous. Treating with open surgery, you can really work with uh, the anatomy of the blood vessel regardless of how it is. Um, and there are some locations that are perhaps closer to the surface of the skull, which are easier to treat with open surgery. Um, or sometimes the relationship of the blood vessels to an aneurysm, for example, uh, would be more dangerous treating through a catheter because if you end up compromising one of those other blood vessels, it's uh, difficult or impossible to undo through a catheter where it's quite easy to undo through surgery. If you're just joining us, you're listening to HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neurosurgeon Dr. Graham Gould, and we're talking about endovascular neurosurgery. So obviously having the opportunity or the skill to do either of these approaches, as we said before, the target is the outcome, not so much the process. Um, what kinds of training are involved? I mean, tell us about yourself a little bit in terms of your training. Sure. Um, so 
the training for, for all of us really is obviously medical school and residency training. Um, in, in the world of neurosurgery, most residency training involves you know, six or seven, sometimes even eight years after medical school. Um, I did a seven-year residency training program um, at Yale New Haven Hospital after medical school. And then uh, after that point, um, you can go into neurosurgery practice or um, in my case, I wanted to do extra training so I could get uh, the opportunity to also practice with some of these interventional radiology-based techniques. And so I did another year of fellowship training in Philadelphia at the Jefferson Hospital for Neuroscience. And you're pretty new to our area. You've just been here a little bit of time. That's and, true. And, and now part of what's considered a comprehensive stroke team. Yeah. How does your role, uh, what, tell us a little bit about your role as part of this comprehensive stroke team. So a comprehensive stroke center really requires a lot of uh, different team players, um, and, and they're all quite critical. Uh, and I think that um, beyond the uh, strict definition and um, regulations that are necessary to achieve that status, uh, what it really means is that the whole institution um, has developed a system uh, for taking care of stroke patients and uh, optimizing their outcome. And so that means that um, from our partners in the emergency department, uh, our partners in uh, neurology and uh, the critical care units, uh, our partners in nursing that are with the patients all the time, um, that are often the first, uh, first folks to identify a patient that might be having a stroke, um, all the way uh, to rehab, uh, which is uh, we've learned so critical in making patients better um, after they suffered the event. One of us is always on call, both from neurosurgery and on the interventional side, um, and I'll take call for both. Uh, my role is to uh, evaluate patients on an emergency basis, um, evaluate the imaging, which is often you know, in the form of a CT scan, and then uh, some patients need to be taken directly to the operating room, for example, for open surgery. Uh, and some go directly to uh, the interventional radiology suite um, for uh, catheter-based procedures. Um, and some of the most common problems that I treat are large vessel ischemic stroke, so that one of the large blood vessels to the brain um, is blocked by a blood clot, typically. Um, and so by using catheters and wires and devices under uh, x-ray guidance, we can uh, retrieve blood clots and restore blood flow, um, sometimes so, using balloons and stents, just like in the heart. Um, and then on the operating room side, uh, again, uh, sometimes either uh, evacuating a blood clot from the brain, repairing a blood vessel directly, um, or uh, creating space for a swollen brain. So these are done under fairly emergent circumstances, though, right? Oftentimes time, they are. Yes. Time is really of, of the essence here. And this, this idea of giving through the catheter, some, these, this, um, these clot-busting drugs also play a role at times? Sometimes they do. Uh, in my experience, using those drugs is not as successful. I am uh, almost always successful at restoring blood flow using uh, devices to physically restore blood flow with... Uh, you know, retrievable stents, for example, or suction catheters. Um, using those drugs doesn't work as well, in my experience, but certainly we have lots of uh, tools at our disposal um, to fix the problem and make the patient better. Talking about tools, I also understand that you are somewhat of an inventor and you've got some device that you're thinking about and potentially working on right now. In the very little bit of time we have left, tell me what that is. Right, so uh, I'm very interested in uh, developing uh, new technology to improve outcomes uh, in brain disease and spine disease. One of the uh, tools that I have worked with in the past is uh, taking the idea of cooling uh, brain tissue uh, to protect it against uh, a lack of blood flow or, or during surgery. Uh, even during seizures, it turns out, is quite effective. Um, and I'm also working on other devices um, working inside of blood vessels, um, which uh, hopefully are ways that we can continue to advance medicine and make people better with shorter hospital stays, um, less pain, and faster recovery. Well, all sounds very exciting. I think the field is really growing beautifully, and um, 
only the patients have to benefit from all of this. And we want to welcome you. Thank you so much for coming in, Thanks telling us about yourself and all of your very important work. My guest has been Dr. Graham Gould, Professor of Neurosurgery at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. In our expert advice from the experts at Upstate, we have orthopedic surgeon Dr. William Lavelle explaining what to do for a knot in your shoulder. So this is what we do when we have uh, patients who have a uh, knot in their shoulder, as my parents would call it, or a muscle pull or muscle sprain. Typically, these happen very acutely. They can cause pretty traumatic pain in an isolated spot of your shoulder. And the best thing to do, be it uh, as a cause from uh, a problem with your neck or a problem with your shoulder, is first to stop the activity that has caused it. If that doesn't settle the symptoms down, the best thing to do as a muscle is um, a unit that contracts and goes into spasm is first to try to stretch that muscle as best as you can. So if that muscle is in fact a muscle on the back of your shoulder, the best thing to do is to try to stretch that muscle. Typically, I recommend patients to try to bring their arm across the chest and to try to stretch the muscle out in that way. If that doesn't help, the next best thing is to have someone to try to manually stretch the muscle out itself. There can be common areas that this happens to people over and over again, and in medicine we call those trigger points because they trigger the muscle to go into spasm and to cause the patient's pain. If this happens over and over again, one of the things that we can do is actually a local injection into the area to try to break up the trigger point. There are oral medicines that can help too for uh, symptoms that happen over and over again, but most of the time, patients simply just require to avoid the activity that causes them that kind of pain, and if it happens, again, the best thing to do is to try to immediately stretch the muscle to prevent it from going into what's called tetany or spasm. up next, the problem of underage drinking and what can be done about it. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Alcohol remains the most widely used substance of abuse among our nation's young people, with serious negative consequences for them, their families, and communities. In 2011, about 25% of those ages 12 to 20 reported drinking alcohol in the past month, and approximately 16% were binge drinkers. We'll hear with an update on the state of underage drinking in this country and its impact on the health and well-being of our youth is Philip Rose, Program Coordinator for Underage Drinking Prevention for the Prevention Network in Syracuse, New York. Welcome. Thanks for coming in, Mr. Rose. Linda, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me. So underage drinking continues to have a negative impact on our kids. Tell us what some of the consequences of this are. Um, you know, before I, I talk about that, because they are serious and there are multiple uh, impacts on, on young people and families uh, too, I, I want to point out that um, overall we're doing quite well. When you say 25%, that means also 75% of young people, and this is um, collaborated by local statistics. We did a major study in 2012 of thousands of uh, students, uh, high school and middle school students here in Onondaga County. And it's really encouraging in many ways that 75% of the young people are doing well. And that means their parents are doing well and the adults around them and their teachers. So we need to give a shout out and really a praise those people that are, are doing uh, right by their children and the young people are, are understanding some things. 
Um, and the other 25%, that's more troubling, you know. It's, uh, uh, yes, we are still missing out in a way on a quarter of the young people, and that it should be of concern to us because what alcohol does is it really, um, uh, really cutting-edge science in the last 10 years or so has really shown that the impact of alcohol on the brain is really significant. Especially if when you're drinking at a young age. Yes, actually, the younger you drink, like if you start drinking when you're 14, the chances of you having serious problems as an adult later on in life is about 50%. Mm. So that really the problem with addiction really goes up the younger you start. Exactly. So the longer you can delay, the better. And, you know, what happens is that the brain is compromised, you know, and so, you know, actually the the fact that the legal age is 21 is actually an excellent idea because now they're finding out that the brain doesn't finish developing until your early 20s. That's significant. So what are some of the issues that come up? I mean, I think this is self-evident, but we know about things like DWI, vehicle accidents, crashes, but some other issues that maybe aren't as apparent, like the fact of unwanted or unintended sexual activity, perhaps unwanted pregnancies coming of oh, you know, someone who's drinking quite a bit and is less in control of themselves. Mm-hmm. A good friend of mine, uh, Marian Angelilla, who lost her son in a, in a, a bad accident um, crash um, uh, 10 years ago uh, because of drinking, you know, she, has this, uh, she gives a lot of speeches around. She says, when you drink, you can't think. In other words, you may want to try and think, but your brain is already compromised. So you make bad decisions. You know, the alcohol influences uh, the frontal lobe of the brain, the problem-solving parts of the brain. So, yeah, you take risky behavior sexually, you know, or you do stupid things. You think you can go fast, or you think you can jump off the roof, or you can drink too much, you can keep drinking. So, yes, exactly, the the brain doesn't work so well. Yeah, and despite the fact, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the fact that it's dropping, which is a good sign, <clears throat> I read a, a, a shocking statistic that almost 4,700 youths in the United States, alcohol is a factor in their deaths each year. And 440,000 underage drinkers end up in the ER nationally every wow. year, 440,000. Wow. wow. So it it's, still, it <laughs> still know, remains yeah. an issue. Yeah. But now you were saying that the incidence has changed in terms of that the 75% seem to be doing better or, or perhaps aren't as Correct. impacted. Correct. But um, why do you think this has changed in, in terms... Well, first of all, has it dropped significantly, and how, how has it dropped in the last several years? Yeah, um, underage drinking is down. Uh, some of the national studies have shown that uh, things are uh, improving in that way. There are less people um, drinking. Um, I brought a report here with uh, to me. One is... Um, I can find it... <laughs> that um, traffic accidents, uh, drinking and, and, and traffic accidents are down. Traffic fatalities fall dramatically. Um, so what we're seeing is that the work that I think that we're doing, both as prevention people, as uh, educators, people in the school systems, um, social work, human service people, and parents, are really focusing on this issue. You know, they have, um, in some of the schools, for example, they have these dramatic re-enactments um, ta- um, reenactments of crashes, like around prom time. And the whole school shows up and watches these horrendous things that happen to you. Well, that has an impact. You know, young people are kind of getting into their brain that at least you don't drive. You know, you don't do these things that w- would cause your death. Um, and people like my friend Marianne, who goes out and talks to many, many students and tells her story, these things are coming through. We, we are getting through to young people that, that, you know, this is not a great idea. It's kind of like smoking in a way. We're beginning to have an understanding that this is as dangerous as smoking. So we're gaining a little traction. We're gaining a little traction. Right? If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with uh, youth drug and alcohol counselor Philip Rose, and we're talking about underage drinking. But what I noticed were a couple of statistics that were troubling, that even though in general the numbers are falling, there seems to be an increase in two things that kind of struck me. One was an increase in binge drinking, that perhaps that that's on the rise, and the other is that there are more females today 
that are showing patterns of excessive drinking. Yeah, no, good point. Um, the uh, the binge drinking, which is uh, for people out there that don't know what binge drinking is, basically consuming like five drinks in a row within a short period of time. In other words, the alcohol is just streaming through your 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 body quickly, so your mind your mind is more compromised. Yes, I it's it's a bit of a mystery to us, but you're right. When when young people do drink, they drink hard. You know, it's like, all right, let's, they don't drink socially. It's not like just going out and having a beer. It's like, let's get drunk. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, 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 uh, the culture. Um, and to me, it's like, it's a number of factors. It's all the pressures that young people are on, what kind of support they have, what kind of family environments they have that kind of allow them to think this is... Uh, well, you, you know, young people want to kind of go to that edge anyway. As you get older, you want to do more risky things. You want to get outside your family and, you know, do some things that are kind of edgy, and which is, you know, okay if it's a safe kind of edge, you know, if you're, you know, doing, uh, you know, water skiing or something like where that. There's a, where um, there's some kind of a safety net around correct, anyway. Correct, you know, you know you, and that's okay. But alcohol will take you to that edge quickly, and so it's kind of an easy... Um, rush in that way. So yeah, it is. And it, of course, the health impacts are huge. You know. But how about females? Why do you think there are more girls drinking well, at a younger age? I, I just read a book called uh, Blackout um, by a young woman, a young woman who talked about blacking out a lot, uh, going through school, going through college, and she talked. It was kind of like a false feminism. It gave her a kind of courage. You know, kind of like, wow, this is, I can stand up to the guys and I can talk with them and, and you know, be tough in a way, you know. Liquid and, courage. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so there's a kind of piece of that. Plus, the alcohol industry has really focused a lot of attention on selling their product to, to women. Mm. The, they're making these sweet alcohol drinks now. That's and the, very interesting. And they're more attractive to young women. The young women don't like to drink the hard liquors or the or the the beer as much. But if you add some sweet, you know, like a, a lemonade or a, a cherry taste to it, uh, it's more attractive. And so, do you think there are additional pressures in general on kids for both that maybe contributes to the binge drinking concept, or for young women to be getting to jump into it? I mean, do you see something in our culture? some forces that may be shaping these types of behaviors Well, besides the advertising? Well, um, we live in a troubled society. Things are not going so well. You know, the level of unemployment, the level of um, chaos, both, you know, within the country, within our communities, racial tensions, uh, tensions between uh, people. I mean, young people are aware of that. It's in their face all the time. You have to just turn on the TV and you're, you're surrounded by, you know, some awful thing that's happening, as well as internationally, as well as the environment, you know, and these things... You see a lot of threats in the world. Yeah, and it kind of creates a kind of hopelessness, you know, young people. It's like, oh, what can I do about that, you know? It's like, so I'll just go ahead and at least I'll party hard, you know? Yeah, or um, I'll escape in I'll some escape, way. I'll escape, exactly, escape the pain. You know? Do you think the culture of some colleges promotes that kind of drinking more than others, or do you think going away to college... It kind of exacerbates these kinds of tendencies. I'll give you an example. Uh, I worked with a young woman who was one of my leaders. I had a youth leadership team uh, locally here called the Squad Students Questioning Underage Drinking. Great bunch of young people. Uh, just great acronym. Yeah, it was great. And uh, we would go out to the schools, and they would do these presentations. I wouldn't do them. They would speak to other young people about uh, the risks of of, of drinking, etc. And um, one of my leaders, one of my, you know, smart, active, outspoken uh, young women went to college. She graduated, left the, left the city and went to college, started drinking in the first two years of college, you know. I mean, you know, she, she said, well, I got there, you know, I was lonely, I was on my own, all, everybody else was drinking. She started drinking. So, you know, and then after a couple of years of doing that, she realized that was really stupid and she... She stopped drinking completely and kind of went back to church and her some of her cultural things and and uh, changed that. But that's I mean even her you know it was like wow you know. So the, there is a lot of pressure. The, yeah, and I think all those other factors that you mentioned—the fact that you're alone, you po might be lonely, you want to fit in—all of that additional pressure. That's right. 
yeah. you don't maybe have the support of your home and family oh, or community. Yeah, I, I think the supports in college are awful <laughs> as far as that kind of support. You're kind of tossed on the, the waves of, of, the, of the, the systems in the dormitories or whatever. Suddenly you're living with somebody else. You know, you've had a room all your life by yourself, and suddenly you're living with you know, all those factors. So. Right. So what do you think has been most – I don't want to run out of time. What do you think has been most effective with regard to prevention? You've been working in this field for a while. And along with that, what role do parents play? Okay. The, we found several major pieces. Number one is keep the conversation going. Keep talking about it. Talk early and regularly about this thing. It's like don't just presume that they've got it. You need to be open, listening to their concerns, listen to what they're, you know, not not a lot of lectures, but hey, what's going on in your group, you know, blah, blah, blah. The other is like just check where your young people are going. Find out who they're hanging out with and what parties they're going to and make sure there's adult supervision, that sort of thing. But underlying a lot of that seems to me to be a certain relationship of trust that a child and a parent really has to have established maybe a lot earlier on in their lives Correct. to then be able to seek out or rely on the parent at that point to help support them through that. Because if there is no trust or it's just going to be punitive action Correct. or... You could see where then there's the hiding. And no, well said, well said. Yeah, the, the the history of trust and relationship building is critical, you know. But And the teen years, of course, are the time when young people are fed up with their parents and they're, they're, they're kind of fleeing from the parents. So What about parents' own use of substances? How does that, what role does that well, play, exactly. either alcohol yeah, or no. others? You have to look at what you do, you know, how, what are you modeling, you know, are you a heavy drinker or a light drinker or how does that, how does it look? What is, your, your children have a front row seat on your life and so yeah, you have to be self, you have to be thoughtful about what you're doing and how you communicate to your young people about what you do, so you're absolutely correct. But the truth is parents really do still have a crucial role in prevention. From yes, your perspective. yes, and the other thing is that young parents need to be very clear and set a policy of, hey, we don't drink here, we don't do, do drugs, we don't do, you know, until you're older, you don't, we just don't do it. If you don't say those words, they will presume that you don't care or that you, you, you're, they're giving you permission. Thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate all your information very much. My guest has been Philip Rose, Program Coordinator, Underage Drinking Prevention for the Prevention Network in Syracuse, New York. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Ruth McKay is a marriage and family therapist here in central New York. I would like to read an excerpt from her essay, Innocence in the Face of Darkness. She deftly traces how families can get trapped in disturbing patterns of cruelty and abuse. For 17 years, I worked with women who were parents of young children. Each woman struggled with something that had come to be called severe and persistent mental illness. Some of these women had experienced early betrayal and abandonment, and felt a deep and raging loneliness that was carried into the present, even into their relationships with their own children. Some felt abandonment when a one-year-old child showed joy at walking independently instead of longing to be carried close. Some wore visible scars of the emotional imbalance caused by unforgotten pain, fine or jagged lines along their wrists and inner arms that mapped out desperate attempts to find a release from unendurable suffering. Rosemary tested me by uncovering the thick, brutal scars on her arms during our first meeting at her children's daycare, as if to ask, can you take this, honey? Because if you can't, I want you to hit the road now and not make promises of being there for me that you can't keep. Rosemary had two children, a girl and a boy. The boy was almost three and had significant developmental problems, but was a happy, friendly child, often smiling and wanting to show me some latest find from the street or the thrift stores his mother liked to search out. His four-year-old sister had some behavioral issues, sometimes withdrawn and mute, sometimes moving with bursts of energy and a willfulness against her mother's direction and grip. 
with her pale, smooth skin and white gold hair falling in unkempt waves and ringlets, she looked like one of her mother's dolls. At our last meeting, I arrived at our usual appointment time to find Rosemary uncharacteristically wearing makeup, thick, garish, preparing to go out and seeming surprised to see me. She reported that one of the new neighbors came over now and babysat while she went to the bus station in the evening to pick up some extra money to buy the trinkets for her kids that brought her such delight and were like good mother badges to her. So she had returned to prostitution, she was letting me know, and I was feeling uneasy, wondering if I would hear enough to get help from Children's Protective Services. The babysitter then came into the room where Rosemary and I were standing talking, entering from a room where Rosemary had told me her daughter was napping after preschool. Oh, he just lies down with her to help her fall asleep, Rosemary said, looking at me, her denial disappearing for a silent second in our locked gaze. The freckled, red-haired young man, barefoot and wearing a sleeveless T-shirt over his muscled 14-year-old wiry frame, finished buckling his thick leather belt and introduced himself to me, trying to cajole me into seeing him as nothing but a child himself, as he had done with Rosemary. But the innocence he copied with his sly smile was a poor cover for the darkness he saw me see in him. The knot returns to my stomach now, not just for what happened to the child, but for Rosemary's having to live with what she had allowed to happen, for what she chose over protecting her child, for letting her daughter take steps along the dark and dangerous path that had long ago led to the scars on her arms. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore the sweet truth about sweeteners and the power of touch in the treatment of cancer. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.